So listen, we're in Romans chapter 8. We're in a series we're calling Secure. And uh, today's message is going to come packaged this way. We're going to look at some extraordinarily good news together. But then we're going to discover that that good news comes tethered or packaged to some really, really bad news. And it's bad news that we kind of gloss over because we get so caught up in the good news um, and the reality is we're kind of a good news, bad news people, right? I mean, there, in fact, there's a whole genre of jokes out there built on this idea, right, of, you know, good news, bad news. So I'm going to share with you one that I like, and then I'm going to share with you one that I don't like, and I'm going to tell you why I don't like it. So here's the one I like. So a defense attorney is meeting with his client. He says, hey, I've got some good news for you and some bad news for you. First, the bad news. The blood test came back and your DNA is an exact match with the DNA found at the crime scene. That's terrible, said the client. What's the good news? He said, well, your cholesterol's down to 140. I, I did mention I, that's the one I like, right? I clearly liked it more than you did, but nonetheless, here's the one I don't like, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So Jim and Joe had spent a lifetime arguing about whether there was baseball in heaven. I mean, they each hoped there was, but, you know, they were both kind of skeptical. So one day, Joe dies unexpectedly, and his friend Jim is absolutely heartbroken. But a few nights later, Jim has a dream about Joe. Joe's actually in his dream. And in this dream, Joe tells Jim that he has some really good news and some really bad news. The good news is that there is indeed baseball in heaven. Jim says, that's great. What's the bad news? And he says, well, you're pitching on Wednesday. I know. Yeah. Come on. That's the one I don't like. All right, I'm going to tell you why I don't like it. The reason I don't like that joke is because the deepest yearning of every follower of Jesus should be heaven. And, and the, the reason we laugh at that joke is because the clear implication is that earth has it all over heaven. That somehow life in this world is better or superior to life in the next and nothing could be further in the truth in fact that's one of the what that's one of the concepts we're going to unpack together in this series in Romans chapter 8 and it's so important but here is the good news that God is going to share with you and I today he's going to tell us this that as a child of God you are an heir of God and you are a co-heir with Christ. Now friends, wrap your arms around this because what that means is that you and I are going to inherit everything that God owns. And what's so incredible about this promise is that God owns everything. There isn't anything that doesn't belong to him. And we get it all. I mean, in Christ, we've won the biggest lottery, literally, in the history of mankind. But it comes packaged with some bad news. And that's this. You and I are going to have to suffer to get it. Look at this, Romans 8 17 and if we're children we're also heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ but then here's the if if indeed we suffer with him 
so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, last week, I, I want to do a little review. Uh, we, one of the verses that we looked at was Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It's really important that we go back and start there today so that we can understand real clearly what we're going to be talking about today. So here's what Paul said in Romans 8, 9. He said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And then he just says very bluntly, if anyone does not have the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So here's what we know from this verse. This is where we have to start as we think about what God wants to teach us today. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that everyone in this room who belongs to Jesus has the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. We know that. And that means that because he dwells in you, he can minister to you in some very, very incredible ways. So take, for example, the verse before 8.17. This is Romans 8.16. It says this, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit or our inner man that we are God's children. So clearly, one of, the, one of the Holy Spirit's ministries to you and I is that he wants to offer us assurance that we are a child of God. We're told that he testifies to that. He is a witness to that. He brings that to bear on our spirit. But how does that work exactly? And so that's what I really want to focus on today, exactly what that looks like, very, very specifically. I, I want to avoid any kind of vagueness or just generalizations. I really want us to dive, dive in deep. And so for this reason, now we can start at the beginning of our passage, uh, Romans 8, 12 through 13. We'll just walk through it together. So then, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, I want you to highlight that phrase, put to death. I mean, that's violent. If you put to death the deeds of the body, or let's say your sin nature, or that part of you that wants to rebel against God, you will live. So uh, in, in verse 12 here, he's telling us something incredible. He's saying, look, because we have the Holy Spirit within us, we are no longer obligated to sin. You used to be, before you knew Christ, you were just obligated to sin. You had no choice. It's just what people do apart from Christ. Uh, he says, but because you have the Spirit in you, you're no longer obligated to sin. But then it gets better in verse 13. But if by the Spirit uh, or, or through the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. So he says, look, not only are we no longer obligated to sin, but the Holy Spirit gives us the power and the ability to kill our sin, to literally put it to death, to execute it, to kill it. So this is kind of violent, right? In fact, John Piper says this. He says, there is a mean, violent streak in the true Christian life, uh, but it's not violence against other people. It's a violence against all the impulses in us that would be violent to other people. 
It's a violence against all the impulses in ourselves that would cause us to make peace with our own sin. It's a violence against all lust in ourselves and enslaving desires for things like food or drugs or alcohol or pornography or money. It is a violence against fawning after the praise of men or the approval of others. The Holy Spirit, he writes, makes war. And I love that phrase. This is a phrase I'm going to adopt for the rest of our talk. The Holy Spirit makes war on our desires for things like power or fame. It is a violence against the impulses in our own soul toward things like racism and a sluggish indifference to injustice or poverty. So I just want us to realize that this whole putting to death the deeds of the body, I want to point out it can only be done by the Spirit of God. You, don't, you and I, we don't have enough self-discipline in us to pull this off on our own. And then Paul tells us exactly how to put to death the deeds of the body. He says it's through the Spirit. Look at Romans 8, 14. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's son. So he is kind of saying, right, everybody who is led by the Spirit is a child of God. That's what it says. But what does that mean? So does that mean that, um, that the Holy Spirit's going to lead you to marry the right person? Does it mean that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to the right school? Does it mean that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to the right job? Well, all of those things might be true, but that's not true in this context you go well how do you how do you know that well I know from the verse before right because the four at the beginning of this verse connects it to the previous verse what's being said in verse 13 so what he's saying is this he's saying look if you put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit you will live right and, and so he's saying it means that the Holy Spirit will always lead us into war against our sin. That's the context. He will always lead us, not necessarily to the right marriage partner, but he will always lead us to make war on our own sin, on those impulses within us that um, you know, would cause us to rebel or walk away from God. So what he's saying is this, to be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit who always leads us into war against our own sin. And remember, too, that we said earlier that the Holy Spirit testifies. He gives witness that we are God's, that we are children of God. So what does a witness do? Well, he gives evidence. He provides testimony, right? So, so the Holy Spirit is always going to help lead you in making war on your own sin, putting it to death. And I, this is so important, this point, this next point. I want you to notice that it says we're, that the Holy Spirit will lead us to make war on our own sin not other people's sins 
So, for example, I think people that are a little younger than me and a little older than me, I think people in, in my general geographic, uh, I mean, we want to pull our hair, people in our generation want to pull their hair out and they want to say, what is happening in America, right? Like, like, man, what is going on in this country? And they want to lament just how bad it's becoming and how, uh, you know, just the whole deal, right? I mean, you know, you've heard it, you've probably said it a thousand times. Do you know what Paul's saying here? He's saying, listen, it's fine to lament, to, to be sad about what's happening in America, but, but first, you better be sad about what's happening in you. You better, before you go out and you start, you know, picketing or doing anything out there, you better make sure things are good in here. Right? I mean, you better be sad about what's happening in you, and that's maybe what qualifies you to speak with compassion and empathy into what's happening in our country. And it's really important that we get this right. So, you know, yeah. So, furthermore, you know, I'm not, yeah, so here would be my point. You know, because some, some of us think this, we think, well, you know, hey, because I'm concerned about what's happening in, in America, that's what, how I know I'm a Christian. And you know what I would say to you? No, not necessarily. Because unless you're concerned, I mean, we ought to first be concerned about our attitudes toward our wives. We ought to first be concerned about our attitudes toward our husbands, I, I better be concerned about my sloth as a dad. I better be concerned about my lust, you know, my pornography, my lying. I'm not saying I look at pornography. It's just, just making a point. About your lying, right? About our cheating. In other words, I better be the first issue every single time. That's what it means to make war with my sin. And, and I'll just tell you, I, this is the secret sauce, folks, of Christianity. When, when, when Christians make war with their own sin, you know what happens? Something happens in their own heart where when they, when they look at other people's sin, they are so much softer. They're so much more grace-giving. And friends, we got work to do, not just as a church, as in Shelbyville Community Church, but the church in America has work to do because the number one thing that unchurched people think about church people is that they are judgmental. That's the first thought that unchurched people have. And I'll tell you why that's so. It's because we have filled our churches with people who have ceased to make war with their own sin. And so they are far less gracious with other people's sin. And then look what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. This is so incredible to me. He says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, okay, sometimes again, we yank verses out of context the context that Paul is coming into, the reason this word fear comes up is because he's about to tell us that we're going to have to suffer. And so he's giving us this promise so that when we start to bump up against suffering, 
we won't be afraid because we know that the Spirit of God lives in us. And he's not just the Spirit of God, he has the Spirit of adoption. And here's what's so amazing about a Spirit of adoption. You know, I mean, we have a number of families, several staff members. We have many, many staff members here who've recently gone through adoptions. And that is always so incredible to me how uh, determined, how convinced some of our staff members were. Some of you who've been through this, you know this. How convinced you were you needed to adopt a child. You knew how badly they needed that. But almost none of us right we don't we don't get a choice often in who we adopt usually adoption is driven by the values and the goodness of the parents not the kids friends it's the same thing with god god adopts and brings us into our family not because we're all that in a bag of chips but because you know we uh because he loves it's who he is he's gracious he's merciful And he's so compassionate, he just scoops up people into his family, into his home. This is an incredible thing thing to me. So he says that the, so so let's kind of review. The Spirit is always going to lead us to make war on our sin. And then he's going to lead us to cry, Abba, Father. Look at the rest. Look at verse 16. He says, you haven't received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. We're going to come back to that phrase. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So we're told here that the Holy Spirit will first lead us to make war on our own sin, and then he leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, this is a cry of passion and intimacy. I mean, this is an expression of dependency upon God and a deep need for him. Now, you may go, well, how do you know that? Because that's really not what it says. Well, I think there are a couple of really, really important clues. And clue number one is the word Abba. See, Paul could have just said Father. You know, I mean, why put that Aramaic, tender, intimate, sweet, daddy-like word at the front of the word father? Why do you do that? Well, the reason he did that is because that's what he means for you and I to know in our heart. That's the kind of intimacy and dependency he wants us to have on our heavenly father. See, that's a word a toddler would use. Toddlers don't choose to depend on their parents. They have to. They're not going to make it if they don't have a mom or a dad around. And we are meant to look at our Heavenly Father in a way that we acknowledge, if it weren't for you, I'm not going to make it. Daddy, I need you. I long to be with you. I long to be held in, you know, in your arms. I want to hold your hand as I walk through life. It's this authentic yearning, this cry. It's the cry of your heart where you say, Daddy, I need you. I love you. Will you help me? So important, you know. And then the second clue is the word cry. 
He could have just said, well, it causes you to say. But that's not the word he used. And I think the word cry here is intended to carry like this longing, this depth, this sincerity, a passionate intensity. So, you know, it's the cry of a heart that, again, would just say, you're my papa. I want to be where you are. I want to do the things you ask me to do. I want to be with you. So it's an authentic, earnest cry. So, so let's kind of review because we're continuing to build, and I want to be very, very clear. So, so, so how can you know that you're a child of God? Well, the Holy Spirit is going to lead you. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Contextually, what is this leadership referring to? It's a leading to put to death the deeds of the body. Therefore, you can know you are a child of God if you hate your sin and you make war on it through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing he's saying. And then secondly, he's saying that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God by just this yearning and desire for God a desire to be like him and with him Abba father you're my father I need you I love you I depend on you what what would I ever do without you that's the yearning, that's the cry here. This is how we can know that we are children of God, and if we're children, then this is how we can know that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But this begs the question, I mean, okay, so if I'm an heir of Christ, what is it exactly that I'm going to be inheriting? Well, I want to tease out for you three things that you are going to inherit, and as you hear them, if you're really listening, you should be absolutely, incredibly overwhelmed and amazed. I mean, we should all walk out of here leaping for joy like we just won the lottery, every single one of us. So um, what are we going to inherit? Okay, so I'm, in order to do this, I'm going to show you some other verses. So this one's Romans 4, 13. Here's what it said. So a little earlier in the book, here's what Paul said. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world, that's the phrase I want you to underline, inherit the world, that promise was not given through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, so we read that verse alongside a verse like Galatians 3.29, which says this, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are his heirs according to the promise. So, here's, so th that's called putting the pieces together, right? So, so here's how it works. We are, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. Abraham was promised the world as an inheritance, and that means that the world is also our inheritance. So, if, so this, listen to me. Please, I mean, think this through for a minute. If you, this means that if you are in Christ, one day the world is going to belong to you. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to look exactly the way it looks right now. I'm just saying one day the world is going to belong to you. And I just think followers of Jesus need to take a deep breath and drink that in. Because this means that you, if you are united to Christ, you are going to be heirs and of everything that God owns. So here's what this means. This means that you're not just going to own some little postage stamp piece of land in the middle of Indiana. It means that one day you're going to own all of Indiana. 
And it means that one day you're going to own not just Indiana, but Alaska and Hawaii to boot. It means that one day you're going to own it all. It means that uh, you don't need to... So in other words, where would you like to go? One day, you name it, and it will be yours. You'll be able to go there. And you won't need to claw for that or save for that. It's just going to come to you as a gift. And, and, and just kind of an, an ancillary thing. You know, maybe you and I wouldn't be so inclined to grasp and claw for so much in our world if we were more convinced that one day I get it all. I mean, maybe we wouldn't put so much emphasis on retirement and seeing the world. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying retirement's wrong. It's not wrong to want to see the world. I want to see the world. But it's important to also remember that one day we're going to own the world. And I just think that's an incredible truth. So that's one thing. So we inherit the world. What's the second thing we inherit? Well, we inherit God himself. God himself is my inheritance. God himself is your inheritance. The God of heaven and earth. You know, so if you, want an, if you want to have an inheritance that is minus all the tears, minus all the disease, minus all the frustrations, but also minus God, then, then the, this verse says you're not a Christian. You know, but if you want God, and you know, um, He's the only way to get all those things. I mean, look at this, Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Paul said it this way. Hey, right now we, look at, we see God dimly as if in a mirror, but one day face to face. And so, by the way, just kind of another ancillary truth, and I get it because we love people and we should love people, but sometimes a husband will lose a wife or a wife will lose a husband and maybe they've been married 50 or 60 or 70 years and they'll say what we would all say, I can't wait to get to heaven and see my wife. And that will be a beautiful moment. I wouldn't want to take anything away from the preciousness of that. But let me just say this. When you lock eyes with your Savior, Jesus, you are going to be so enamored at his beauty and so overwhelmed by his glory that your husband or wife of 50 or 60 or 70 years will be far less important to you. Because you'll see his face. And his face is the one you were created to see and know. So you get God, right? And then thirdly, and this is going to be so important in the next couple of weeks, he says we get resurrected bodies. We get resurrected bodies. So that's part of our inheritance. We get a glorified body. And uh, we can, we'll see this very clearly in the verses that we're going to look at next week. Um, but in, in Romans 8, 23, we, we read that um, not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit, that we groan as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. See, listen, any brand of theology that would cause you to ignore suffering or not point you to the reality of suffering and the reality that one day your body is going to wear out and give out is not serving you well. 
Because what happens is if, you, if all you're looking for is the blessing and the help and the healing and you're not looking to God through the suffering, you're going to raise an angry fist at God the first time it shows up. God's church needs to be prepared to suffer every single one of us and listen I mean 2020 is a great example of that right listen if 2020 were a drink it'd be like a colonoscopy prep drink (laughs) I mean that's suffering right we all know this that's what you're going to quote isn't it the whole you're not going to remember anything else I said today that's going to be the quotable line Look, I'm just pointing out that suffering is inevitable in this world. It's just inevitable. And Paul's going to get real clear in the next couple of weeks. It's inevitable because we live in a fallen and a broken world. You're not suffering because because God hates you or doesn't love you or because he has rejected you as a son or a daughter. You are suffering because you live in a fallen and a broken world. So, um, yeah, so these are my three inheritances, right? You're going to get, you're gonna get uh, the world, you're going to get God, and you're going to get uh, a glorified body. Um, and, but but the, all this comes with some bad news, and here's the, here's the bad news. You and I have to suffer to get it, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him so we have this amazing inheritance but i've got to suffer to get it that means we're going to have to endure things like pandemics and job losses or chronic illness or painful circumstances or the death of people that are precious to us we're going to have to endure spouses who fail to understand us i mean it just goes on and on and on and that my friends is life in this world the fact that we live in a broken and a fallen world is why things like drought and hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and earthquakes and tidal waves all exist and we're going to get to the why of all of that a little bit later in Romans 8 but here here in this verse is a very big but that that didn't come out that did not come out the way I wanted it to. Like, so this next verse, this, this but in the next verse, it's not, yeah, you're tracking with me. So this is verse 18. Listen to what it says. For, for or but, I consider that the sufferings of this present time or life in this world are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to shine it will be revealed in us, to us. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, compared to what we get, compared to what's waiting on us, our suffering is light. It's momentary. It's nothing. All, you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, when Christians suffer, there is purpose in their suffering. When others others suffer, there is no purpose. I mean, this is so incredible to me. He's saying, look, every tear, there's a purpose in that. 
A Christian's suffering brings with it purpose and meaning while others just endure. They just suffer. But make no mistake, friends, Christian or non-Christian, everybody is going to suffer. Everybody. So here's a question for you this morning. Are you willing to stay with Jesus through your suffering? Or are you just going to shake an angry fist and say, well, if this is the way you treat your kids, I'm out. And people do that every day. Everybody's going to suffer. Now, why? Why? This is a great question. It's not in the text, but I want to address it for a minute. Why? Why is suffering so important? Why, Why would God say that suffering has to be a necessary path to this incredible inheritance that we are going to go into? Here's the reason. Listen, because if we fallen people We're not brought into trial after trial after trial. We would fall ever more deeply in love with the eases and the comforts and the delights of this world. We would. And we would forget God. Every one of us. We would forget any sense of dependency that we're meant to have on him. And God loves you way too much to leave you to yourself. See, he, God knows and God alone knows the therapy that I need and that you need to get better in order to obtain our inheritance. And let me tell you this, it's different for everybody. I mean, listen, Brad Davis's suffering regimen is different than yours. And let me tell you something about mine. I don't like it. I despise it. But I want to know my heavenly father so deeply that I'm willing to look at him and say, thank you. Thank you for putting me in circumstances where I have to depend on you. I wouldn't want it any other way. Sometimes I'll look at a staff member and I'll say to him, look, any any day we get to trust God, it's a good day. It's a good day when we have an opportunity to trust God. God. And let me just say this, in my suffering, God is not breaking one promise to me. And he's not breaking one promise to you either. He isn't. God is not letting me down and he's not letting you down either. On the contrary, what God is doing is he's preparing me for my inheritance He is helping me grow more and more dependent on him. And that, my friends, that is the very, very best gift my heavenly father can give to me. Is to keep my eyes, help me learn, train me to keep my eyes fixed on him every day as I walk with him saying, Heavenly Father, Papa, I need you. You're my dad. I can't do this without you. Don't leave me. I mean, I'm thankful for your promise. It's just that walk. It's that attitude. It's that mindset every, every single day. So yes, it says if we suffer with him, I mean, if we don't shake an angry fist at him and say, well, I'm out of here because if that's the way you treat kids, I'm done. I'm gone, you know. But if you say this, if you say things like this, Father, Daddy, I hate my sin more than I hate being uncomfortable or God help me to love you more than I love my sin or 
Have your way in me, Papa. I need you. I hunger for you. I thirst for you. I mean, like a deer would pant after water, so my heart longs and thirsts for you. This is how you can know that you're a child of God. You have a longing within you to know the Father heart of God more and more and more deeply. And I would just say this, if you're being led to make war on your sin and you're being led to cry, Abba, Father, you can have incredible confidence that you're a child of God. And if you're a child of God, you're an heir of God. And you get it all. And that's a good day, any day and every day. Amen? Amen. So listen, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite our praise team to come up and we're going to take communion together. And let me just say this, communion is an excellent time. I mean, it's like the perfect time. I'm so grateful that today's message fell on a communion Sunday. It's just pure coincidence, right? Not. So uh, communion is a time where we should acknowledge, hey, Jesus, you paid the cost for my sin. And that cost was really high because my sin is so great. Would you help me, Lord Jesus, make war on my sin? Would you help me get violent with my sin? Would you help me execute my sin? Would you help me put to death my sin? That's the first and top priority in my life. Not putting to death other people's sins. Mine. It starts with me. Friends, again, I said it before. This is the secret sauce of Christianity. It's, what, it's what's going to make it attractive to a world that needs the grace of God just as badly as you and I needed it. So let me pray for us. So Heavenly Fathers, we take communion together. We just, uh, we, you know, we acknowledge that, uh, that our sin is great but your mercy is more. We admit our utter dependency upon you. God, we can't make it in this world one day without you. And so help us in this room to want you more, to cling to you more tightly, to hunger and yearn and thirst for you in the way that we hunger and thirst for lesser things in the way that we hunger and thirst for the lure of a lesser loyalty than you. And so, God, um, we give you thanks and praise as we consider your sacrifice, your body offered up, your blood spilled for us. We're astounded. We know nothing like it in this world except for you. And so we are grateful today to be called children of God, sons and daughters of the Lord, uh, the Lord of life and King of kings. So we give you great, great praise and thanks, and we do it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.